my name is Kerry Alderson. I'm one of the pastors here at Edgewater. Um, first thing I thought of when Matt asked me to fill in, I was like, well, they, they go pretty long on Wednesday nights, it seems like. You guys are a great group. You're very patient. Fortunately, I used to work in radio, and I was a teacher, and now I'm a pastor, so talking is not a problem for me, so we'll be good. So we're in 1 Samuel 16, so if you guys could turn there. This chapter is amazing. Such a, amen, that's right. Such a huge blessing to me uh, to be able to study through it. Dan, of course, last week had chapter 15. Again, if you are looking for it, we're in chapter 16, 1 Samuel. We're gonna go through the whole chapter. It's only 23 verses. There's about four kind of sections that we're gonna look at. So Dan, if you were here last week, talked about obedience and how costly it is when you're not obedient. Um, Pastor Matt went through 1 Samuel 11, 12, and 13, which is really important to understanding our story tonight because that talks about King Saul and his rise. And if you were here, you remember Matt talking about the snake king and, and Saul was on the cusp of possibly doing some good things and then he doesn't trust God and he kind of finds himself in a position where God's done with him. He's done. And so this chapter is the chapter we get introduced to the new king, King David. So there is a great beginning to it. There is a verse in the middle of it. If you are not studied up and you don't understand the context of it, it is problematic on its own. And we will look at that here in a second. But let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for truth. In a world of confusion and deception, we thank you that we can find peace and comfort and joy in the words that you give us, your promises. We thank you for a relationship with you through your son, Jesus. I pray tonight that as we study King David's anointing, I pray that we would have a better understanding of the desires that you have for us in a relationship that you desire for us to have with you. And so I pray that you would speak to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. I know the guys usually sit down. If you don't mind, I'm gonna stand. I did something to my back. A little marriage advice, guys, listen to your wives. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> Standing just feels better. If I sit, it's like, ah. Oh. All right, so here we are. What we're gonna do is we're gonna look at a few of these scriptures and just kind of stop and talk about them. And then at the end of it, we're gonna go back and we're gonna take a deeper dive into really royalty, the selection of King David and what it means for us. So we'll start with verses, um, we'll just start here in the first few verses. Verse one, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So we start this chapter, understandably, Samuel is disappointed. Everybody's disappointed. They thought they had what they had wanted in this king, King Saul, but they know, ultimately, it hasn't worked out. Samuel's disappointed. God tells him it's time to move on. God understands that earthly leaders can disappoint. 
Samuel's not used to this, but God says, get used to it. It's time to move on. And he says, basically, the Hebrew translation really says, I see for myself a king. I see for myself a king. I want you to go to this family of Jesse because it's there that I see myself a king. And Samuel says, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. So he's fearful. He's kind of doubting. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. So first thing here is, I love, you know, Pastor Matt's testimony about like dealing with doubt and bringing it to God. And I love Samuel is just, just in conversation with God. He's expressing, Lord, if, if I do this, how can I do that? If I do it, I'm going to die. He's going to kill me. Like this is the ultimate cancel job. Like if I speak this truth that you have given me, I will die. And God in his patience gives him a way to come peaceably and let them know that this is something from God. This is not Samuel just overreacting. This isn't Samuel just frustrated. This is Samuel hearing from God and saying, I'm bringing the sacrifice. I'm gonna feast with you. I'm gonna dine with you. I'm gonna share with you what God has told me. And speaking up is hard. It's difficult. And we we think we have it difficult in this day and age. Imagine the fear that he has in knowing that he could possibly be killed. It it got me thinking um, how important it is. You know, this is God's word, and we, we time and time again see examples of how we are supposed to express our faith verbally. He gave us the living word. Amen. And we should be people who are bold enough to share his truth His truth, not your truth, my truth, their truth, his truth. In a day and age where that is not popular. Now, we need wisdom and grace and understanding how to deliver it. But nonetheless, we need to be bold in sharing his word. There's a quote, I see it so much. And every time I see it, I understand the heart behind it, but it drives me crazy. Um, St. Francis of Assisi is attributed to the quote, but it's actually not from him. You can't find it anywhere that he ever wrote it. Um, You've probably seen this. And I used to be a teacher, and I understand as a public school teacher the, the difficulty in being able to express your faith. But it says, preach the gospel, and when necessary, use words. Raise your hand if you've heard that, right? Preach the gospel, and if necessary or when necessary, use words. It's awesome. I understand what it means. It's saying to live out the gospel. We absolutely should be people who live what we say and live out what we believe. Our actions should match. But far too many people in this day and age out of fear will sit back and be quiet about speaking the name of Jesus because of fear of cancellation, causing problems, whatever it might be, but we sit back in, in fear and do not speak up when we should. This is a great picture of obedience in going into a situation where he knows he could be killed for speaking the truth that God told him to share. So the other thing I love about this section is Jesus demonstrated his love for us 
that while we were yet sinners, he died on the cross for us, right? That, that, that was an expression of Jesus's love for us. And so what Samuel does here is, is an example of what somebody who loves God would do. Listen and respond, or listen and obey. This is a good practice for us as believers. Listen and respond. And you can do this daily with the people you love. The people you love, you listen to, and you respond to what they told you to do. This played out for me beautifully a few weeks ago. I have a daughter. She's the youngest of three. She's 14. A few months ago, she grabbed me and she said, Dad, this is really important. Put down your phone and look at me. Okay. You laugh, but you parents, you know. So I'm like, okay. She said, listen to me, Dad. I have to share something. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. It's getting serious. She said, look at this. She pulls out her phone. She said, you see this song right here on Spotify? Wait, can I say Spotify? Is that okay to say? Okay. (laughs) I don't want to cause any problems. Um, She said, see this song right here? This song. It's from Taylor Swift. It's not new. It's old. I need you to listen to this song every day for the next four weeks. And I was like, Avery, I'm not listening to Taylor Swift every day for the next four weeks. Dad, if you love me, you're going to listen to this song every day for the next four weeks. I'm like, okay. I listened to it, not every day for four weeks, but I listened to it because I love her and I responded. Fast forward a few weeks later, there's a young boy who likes my daughter. He's a good kid. I like him, and, but they can't date. He can't date. She can't date. We're like, we understand, you know, feelings, whatever. That's fine. A big group of them decide that they want to go to the movies after a few weeks of them, you know, just talking and all that stuff. And it's a totally safe situation. Like, yeah, that's great. You know, that's totally fine. You guys can go. So this is kind of a big moment for her and for us as parents and everything. And so she's there and it's almost nine o'clock and I'm going to pick her up at Southgate Cinemas and, and I pull up and I'm waiting in the parking lot and I did what every other parent does when they're waiting in the pickup line or whatever. I'm scrolling social media, just wasting time sitting there and somebody posts something and it said this, Taylor Swift's new song is going to be dropping at 9 p.m. Pacific time, not midnight. I look at the clock. That's just like a few minutes away, like, like three minutes away. And I scramble. I'm like, no way. I pull out my phone. I plug into the USB. I put it on Spotify. I pull it out. I turn the song on, roll down the windows. I have it blaring. My daughter is walking out of the movie theater with all of her friends and this boy that likes her. And her dad is blasting the song that she's been waiting weeks and weeks and weeks to come out. She sprints away from their group, throws her hand up, goes running, flings open the door, jumps in and says, let's go. And God bless that boy. I like him. He's great. But I'll tell you what, there are 7 million boys in the United States that are close to my daughter's age and I'm in competition with every single one of them. I am. The bar is high. I want her to know. That's right. Dad's My love for her is strong. I'm going to listen and I'm going to respond. So we continue in verse four and five. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? This cracks me up. Samuel comes with this news and they come out trembling. 
do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. I don't know how many of you watched The Office, but raise your hand if you know who Toby is. Toby is the HR guy. Do you remember when Toby comes back and Michael Scott sees him and he's just like, no, he freaks out. Dear God, no, he says, it's you. I can, that's kind of what is in my mind when I see this. Samuel shows up and they're like, dear God, no, please. Samuel, do you come peaceably? He says, peaceably I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So again, this is from God. It's, it's kind of God's covering on this whole situation. Um, it's a way for them to see, again, that this is not Samuel just acting out on his own. Verse six, when they came, he looked on Eliab, Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So now it's the selection process. Remember, God was interesting in his directions to Samuel. He didn't tell him exactly who it was. He said, go there. I see a king there. I see him, but he doesn't tell him who it is. He tells him to go there. When he gets there, Eliab comes out. He says, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> it is kind of funny. Yeah, I mean, he's rejected by him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We have Eliab. He comes out. He's tall. He's big. It's funny how immediately that is the attraction. That is the default. We're going to look for somebody just like the guy that failed. Saul was described as being head and shoulders above everybody else. Matt talked about it in chapter 11 or 12. He talked about the selection of Saul. I remember clearly because he made an emphasis about how tall Saul was. Dan Vidlack and I had a conversation about it afterwards. We really did. Did you notice how he kept talking about that? Yeah. Yeah, he kept talking about how Saul was very, very tall. Turns out we call that a false equivalency because how tall he was was, in, was not in direct correlation with how great of a king he was. So, I don't know. You tall guys, be careful, all right? So, it's just funny. It's immediately the appearance. The lesson for us is we need to remember only God's eyes see truly. Only God's eyes see truly. Only his eyes see internal, internally. God's eyes see truly and internally. And in that, God's eyes see true beauty. Truly and internally, and he is able to see true beauty. It's in this that God is setting the course for his kingdom. He wants us to see what type of king he wants in his kingdom. His kingdom needs a king who's got a heart after him. His kingdom is a kingdom that should run on peace and harmony and, and sacrifice and love. And he warns, don't get distracted by the world's standard. It feels unavoidable for us at times. But God says, listen, your eyes can, can trick you. Your eyes can deceive you. Beauty and talent and intelligence even, not wisdom, but like earthly intelligence, success, riches, every single one of those things at one point will fail. They will all fail. 
I was reminded of that when my back went out. That was like, thinking through this, like it, these things are not what will last. It's what's on the inside. There's an author named Neil Postman, and he wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And his commentary on our culture in 2022 is fascinating. He says, every culture has had this fascination with the outward appearance, but the culture we're in now, it has been infinitely intensified. The problem of it has just been magnified beyond what anybody could expect. We are way more obsessed with the externals than any culture ever has been. He said a few examples. Stephen Douglas, Abraham Lincoln, in their debate, every single newspaper in the United States ran the full transcript of their debate when they ran for president. Every single newspaper, full transcript, every single word. Yet, he said, if they were to walk down the street in their own hometown, less than 5% of the people would be able to recognize who they were. So the, the natural question became, how did the people know who to vote for? They voted off of ideas. They voted from the words that were spoken. They voted off of policies that were being implemented. They voted off of accomplishments that these men had been a part of. They had words, they didn't have pictures. And what became of that election was what most people say, the election of the greatest president in the history of the United States of America, Abraham Lincoln. Elected off of words, not Instagram or Twitter posts, not sound bites, not snippets of a press conference. The words that he were, was able to share expressing his heart for what he envisioned for the United States of America. Now our elections are based on impressions, feelings, sound bites, quotes, pictures, images, the right tie. Ultimately, quick, brevity, shallowness. It makes sense too. We see it play out in social media. Instagram has passed up Facebook because it's an image. TikTok is now popular, more popular than Instagram because it's a quick hitting short video. There isn't even words that you have to read below the Instagram post. There's just quick little videos and they'll splash some words on the screen for you. Less reading, less words, less context, less depth. That's what's popular. And it feels easy, especially for pastors, to sit back sometimes and blame social media. It's social media's fault, social media's fault, social media's fault. But I don't know if we can really, I don't think we can understate the problem, honestly. I think we as adults need to pay attention. We're probably not getting rid of it, but we need to have conversations, especially with young people, and probably be honest with ourselves as well. It is revealing our weaknesses as a culture. It's revealing our shallowness. It's revealing our desire for King Saul or Eliab or what's on the outside. One of my favorite football coaches says, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. If a team keeps showing you who they are, believe them. They're telling you something. Listen, we're telling ourselves who we are. We are becoming shallow people. It is a weakness that we need to identify 
its effect on women, shallowness, social media, man, the pressures of image and life and being the perfect mom and looking the perfect way and all these things. Unbelievable pressure on moms and females. You know, eating disorders didn't exist 150 years ago. Neither did Instagram. We know the effect it's had on men. The unrealistic images that men are bombarded with, like this is the pinnacle of what you should desire. And at at, at its worst extreme, pornography. We have a friend who... um, She's a doctor and she's, she's met with men in their 30s and she's like, they are not able to be intimate with their wife because of what they've been exposed to. And you guys have heard stories of this. It is sad. One of the residual effects of this is we, we sadly, we have men in this day and age, I'm not necessarily saying in Edgewater, I don't know for sure, but walking right by amazing potential spouses because their eyes have been trained to look for something different. Marriages are on the decline. People are delaying it until later and later in life. What is the effect on young people? Man, the standard is being rewritten in so many ways. There's an elementary school in Southern Oregon. Before quarantine, this is an elementary school. Before quarantine, zero transgender students. Of course, of course they had zero. They're not even in puberty yet. Why would they be thinking about who they're gonna procreate with, right? After nine months of distance learning, not at school, full access to the internet, social media, blah, 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 all this stuff, they came back and they had eight. Never had one, now they have eight. That's amazing to me. I see these middle school girls, used to be a teacher, and so you'd kind of watch and, and like you see it sometimes now and girls that are in here, you, you've probably seen this as well. Sweet and just innocent and not worried about anything. And then the projection of what I'm supposed to look like on the outside, the pressure of it, they can't even live up to it. I, I talk with people that are like, that they said that they're, they wanna be a boy now. Well, I, I get that. It might, it might seem easier to them. They're never gonna be that Barbie doll image that they see on Instagram. So of course, like that would just be easier. I'll do that. Let me just cut my hair and wear a hoodie and I'll be fine. It breaks my heart. It is so sad. The world is lying to us. Do not let the externals trick you. Parents, adults, we gotta pay attention. Verse eight, then Jesse called on Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Verse nine, then Jesse made Shema pass by and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Verse 10, and Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Seven is the number of completion in the Bible. Seven sons passed before Samuel and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. I love that. He doesn't get desperate and like, like Saul did and like take matters into his own hands. He says, huh? Verse 11, he says, Samuel says to Jesse, are all of your sons here? It's funny that, like, this is funny to me that Jesse didn't just offer this information up. Like, Samuel's got to say, are you sure? Are, is there somebody else? And, and he's still kind of sheepish about it. Jesse's like, well, yeah, there's the youngest one. 
And, and the translation in the Hebrew, like the best way that you can honestly translate it really is it's like runt, like what the word we would use for runt. He's like, well, there's the runt. And then he has yet another excuse, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. Like, ah, he's down with the sheep. He's doing the chores. Like, like so, so this is three times now he's kind of avoiding it. And Samuel says to Jesse, send him and get him for me, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. And he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Notice he's not, it's not that he was ugly. It's not like, oh, Saul's beautiful and tall. We need an ugly king. No, that wasn't what it was. David is actually a good looking guy. But there's more to it than that. It doesn't have to do with the looks. I, I do love <laughs> I love, too, that the dad is, I, I, I don't know, I just, I think it's funny. I don't know if it's right or not. I think it's funny how the dad is just like, ah, he's out doing chores. Um, Dan Vidlack told me a story one time, and I've implemented this with my own boys. There's a, certain, there's a certain role the dad has to keep their boys humble, right? And so this Jesse is keeping David humble. So Dan told me that the day after he won the state championship as a wrestler, his dad came in his room and flipped on the lights at like 4.30 in the morning, bright. He hadn't slept. He's the new state champion in wrestling. And his dad said, wake up champ. Time to go to work. Took him out in the field and made him work all day long. He said, and he's like, that was not what I was expecting. So I was like, Hey, there's some wisdom in that. So my son, a couple of years ago as a basketball player, our second son, Owen, he's a pretty good three point shooter. And he had this game, um, where he had eight threes. He had eight three-pointers in a game. He finished with 27 points. At halftime, they were losing by 20. They ended up winning the game by 15. He made, in the third quarter, he made like six three-pointers in a row. Like, everybody's just shaking their head. Like, what is happening? Like, la even he's coming over to the sidelines, like, laughing. He just had this great game. And so they know in our home, like, hey, you know, you don't get a special pass now. So we went and got burgers and in and out, all that stuff. And we came home and I'm like, well, you know what happens now? And his older brother just started laughing. He's like, have fun with the dishes. Don't forget the trash needs taken out, blah, blah, blah. The laundry needs put away. It was just a list of things. We dads have to help our boys stay humble, right? Verse 12, the Lord said, arise and anoint him for this is he. Imagine the shock that Jesse's just like, what? This, what? Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. The spirit of the Lord rushed on him. It's in this moment, David becomes what Pastor Matt talks about all the time, a king in training. Bible scholars say he was probably between 10 and 15 years old. He actually would not become king until 30. He didn't sit on the throne for another 15 plus years. But it's in this moment, the spirit of God rushes on him. David is now a king in training. His life didn't get easier. In fact, he makes a bunch of mistakes. He has a bunch of challenges. There's a lot of struggle that he faces. It's not like the spirit of God came on him. Everything was easy. Everybody lives happily ever after. That's not the life of the believer. If you've been told that, that's not what the Bible teaches. You know, another side note to this that I think is so beautiful, in spite of all of the mistakes that he makes, 
David never stops being king. David sits on the throne from age 30 to 70. And in that time, he's a mess. And, and God says, this is a man who's after my heart. I see his heart. Matt shared in chapter 11 that anytime you see a blessing being poured out on somebody, it's for God's people. I want you to remember that. We're gonna test that theory here in a little bit. Very troubling text for me in the next section if you don't understand the whole picture. Verse 14, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. David got the spirit on him. Saul lost it. The spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. What? A harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him? Verse 15, and Saul's servant said to him, behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. If you guys want to know more about that verse, you can talk to Pastor Matt. I'm just kidding. I actually did talk to Pastor Matt. He's like, yeah, that is a tough one. That is definitely, that is troubling. And we talked about a couple of other places in the Bible where it feels problematic. Harmful spirit from the Lord brought upon him. But honestly, if we know the full story and we take a closer look, Saul had a lot of choices that he made that led up to this moment. It says that God sent it, but honestly, wasn't, wasn't Saul inviting this? Wasn't Saul's disobedience really leading him to this moment? I don't know about you guys, but man, I am off when I am disobedient to God. I will not experience this. We live in, we live in, a new, in the New Testament, right? Okay, so get that clear, first of all. Old Testament, obedience equals blessing. Disobedience equals trouble. New Testament, Jesus' followers, he will never leave you nor forsake you. So we live differently than they did. But still, there is a consequence to disobedience. You can feel it in your own life. Fortunately, we have a gracious, merciful, loving God, and we are under the covenant of grace, but we know that there's consequences for our actions. Last week, Dan said, he said a quote that his dad shared with him. He said, son, listen, it'll cost you to follow the Lord, but it'll cost you a lot more to not follow the Lord. I was like, man, that is so true for us as believers. David remembers this moment. Because in Psalm 51, he's pleading with God to keep him from this. His heart is in sync with the Lord begging, I don't want to experience that. God uses that. Verse 16. So they've just identified this evil spirit. And they, but I love that there's an antidote for it. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. God provides something for Saul that will make him well, a musician, the lyre. He will play and you will be well. He has, a, he has an evil spirit. They say, we'll find a gifted musician. It will help you. To me, this is crazy. Like all the formulas that we come up with in our mind, it, it seems crazy to me. It's a reminder to me of how creative and extravagant and otherworldly God is. That he says, I'm gonna bring music. 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the gift of music, and, and that is going to help you in this moment. There's a famous author and professor from NYU. I think he's an atheist, and he's debated different theologians. He says the thing that causes him to have doubt about what he believes as an atheist is when he goes to the New York Symphony, and he hears the sounds that come from the instruments being played. And he feels what it does to him inside. The natural world cannot explain the feeling you get from music. It, it can't. Whether you're listening to Chris Martinez or Nirvana or whatever it is, you can't explain it. I just was watching a little baby back there when Chris was singing the last song. And you were raising your hands and the smile on the baby's face, like babies can feel it. They start doing this, like they start bebopping. I mean, dancing, what? The other day I was watching, I was doing something and the TV was on and there was no sound and there was a clip of these people and they were dancing without music. It looked so ridiculous. And I thought that is the power of music. How beautiful and generous is our God that he allows us to express ourselves in that way. Verse 17, Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. Love it when people are using their gifts as a weapon against the enemy. Verse 18, one of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Man, what a description of David. Look, skillful in playing this instrument. He's a man of valor. He's a man of war. He's great at speaking. He looks good visually, just like all these things, and he has this gift, and he's going to come use it to bless you. Verse 19, therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and skin of wine and young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. To quote the great musician and new Christian theologian Kanye West. He has a song my son loves listening to. If you've got a gift, you've got to use it. Steve Prefontaine, the famous Oregon Duck runner and Olympian, said to give anything less than the best is to sacrifice the gift. You might be able to play the lyre. You might be able to cook burgers before the service. I don't know what it is, but if you have a gift, you have to use it. And the people that are great at that they understand what they're good at. When I was coaching football, we had a chance to go listen to uh, University of Miami Hurricanes in the early 2000s. They were the national champs, like didn't lose very many games. And a bunch of us coaches here locally went and heard them speak. And he got up there and he's like, okay, here's what we did. We haven't lost a game in two years. We're the national champs. We got Heisman Trophy winners, blah, 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 blah. And he gets up there and all of us, were just like, oh, this is gonna be crazy. And we're like ready and we're listening. And he draws out one play. And there's four different options on it. And they run it out of different formations or whatever, but they have one play. And they just have different options. And they're really, really good at the one play. And we're like, that's it? You just do angle route and this guy goes out. Like, that's it? Yeah, we lost one game in like two or three years. We're like, what? They were really good. They knew what they were good at. And they just were good at doing that thing. That's what I love about Edgewater. Matt and the elders, they're like artesian vanilla. We're not going to get distracted with the things that we're not called to do. 
we're going to do what we do really, really well. We're not going to do a bunch of things average. What we do well, we're going to keep doing that. Verse 22, Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well and the harmful spirit departed from him. This to me is just kind of weird knowing what's coming between Saul and David. Uh, if you're old like me and you saw the movie Sleeping with the Enemy, Julia Roberts, like there's this like, Chris and I were talking about that movie. This is a weird interaction between the two to know what's coming, but I love that the, the, the harmony and the peace that you see in this moment right here. But I wanna finish with this. What is this story about for us? Why is this such a huge moment for us? Like Pastor Matt talks all the time about being a king or a queen and training. We get a look at the selection process right here. The anointing of David shows us what it is for us that we should be looking for. C.S. Lewis in The Horse and His Boy explains it beautifully. Shasta is this orphan, doesn't know the background of his life. He's raised by a poor fisherman. He discovers he's on the verge of being sold into slavery. He escapes, he heads north to Narnia. He's waited to do this his whole life. There's another character in the book that thinks that Shasta might be from Northern Stock, which is good. And after some adventures, Shasta finds out he is indeed of Northern blood. But he finds out something more than that. He's actually, he's actually a prince. He's actually Kor, the long lost son of King Loon. And at the end of the story, his dad, King Loon, speaks with his son Kor about being a king in training and learning and what he's going to have to do to catch up to be the rightful heir. In addition to the courage and sacrifice he's already shown, he tells him this. Of course, this is an illustration of God with us. He says, Come over all the castle with me and see the estate. And mark all its strengths and weaknesses. You know our Father in heaven owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He says, this will be thine to guard when I am gone. Revelation says that we will reign with Jesus. Paul says in Corinthians, like people don't understand this even then. Paul says, don't you know? We will command angels. Like, do you guys understand you are royalty? He says, for this is what it means to be a king to be first in every desperate attack. You're leading the charge. You are first. You are out front. You are a king or a queen. And to be last in every retreat. And when there is hunger in the land, when there is trouble in the land, you wear finer clothes and you laugh louder over a scantier meal than any man in your land. You get your best on. You laugh in the face of danger. You don't shrink back. You lead out front. You're the first one out there. You look the best. You are ready to go. You're trained up for this. You know who you are. You are a king or a queen in training. You know, there's a secret weapon that God gives us for dark times and it's laughter. It's in Job. It's in Luke. It's in Psalm. It's in Nehemiah. Laugh in the face of danger because we know we are royalty. So we get a picture of a good leader, serves others, giving credit. They don't show, they don't tell you they're the leader. They show you they're the leader. They lead, take responsibilities. Bad leaders are self-serving. They take credit. They tell you they're the leader. They blame. 
So we know these things and we see these things. How are we supposed to do these things? That sounds great, Carrie. That sounds awesome. That's a beautiful story. Anointed as king. Oh, yeah, we're going to be kings. We're going to be queens in training. How do we do this? There's an author who's not a Christian, and he wrote a book called Why Can't We Be Good? You look at every metric, and it's like, everybody, we know we're supposed to do that. Why can't we do it? He asked the question. We know what we're supposed to do, but why can't we do it? How can we not get this? In my 20-ish years of ministry or whatever it's been almost, I don't know, teaching, coaching, working with families, I find most people don't realize they're from Northern Stock. They don't get that they're royalty. And, and when they do, they don't get what that means. It doesn't mean that everybody's serving you, that life is easy. It means that there's challenges to face and you face them head on. A lot of people focus on being overlooked, being the eighth son that the dad forgot about. They get hung up on that. And listen, one of the most common things we will find you have experienced it, I guarantee, is that you've probably been overlooked. You've probably been wounded. You've probably been hurt, possibly by your dad. The pain of being overlooked, discounted, and forgotten is real. It is real. It holds a lot of people back. Every single one of us has felt it on some level. They don't appreciate me. They don't know what I can do. They've overlooked me. They've discounted me. They don't know. I'm the eighth son that was forgotten about, not even brought out to be selected, left out in the field. Joe Burrow is playing in the Super Bowl, the Bengals quarterback. He went to Ohio State and didn't even get a chance. They were like, no, sorry, we got a quarterback. The next year he goes to LSU, breaks every college football record, is the national champion, goes to the NFL in his first full season, not injured, he's going to the Super Bowl. And that team never goes to the Super Bowl. He was overlooked and didn't make an excuse, said, I know what I'm called to do and I'm gonna go do it. Listen, your inauguration into royalty and your subsequent training, it hinges on us understanding the process of selection. David in our story is, what one Hebrew scholar would describe as, as the male Cinderella, left to do the domestic chores instead of being invited to the party. He's tending to the flocks. But in tending to the flocks, this author says, it gives him exactly what he needs to defeat Goliath and lead the kingdom. See, God's in the business of reversing man's traditions. It's not the oldest. It's not the firstborn. It's not one of the seven sons. It's the eighth, the afterthought. God does the opposite. It's not the firstborn anymore. I'm looking at the heart. It's not the tall Saul. I'm looking for David's. It's not just beauty and youth. It's heart and service. <clears throat> God is continually reversing the world's values. Used to be the oldest son got all the money, got the estate, naturally would get the assets, would be the man. The man with the most money gets the beautiful woman, right? Unless... In, except in my circumstance. I've never had money, and yet I got the beautiful woman, so I'll explain that one. But This author says, everywhere in the Bible, God saves and works deliberately in reverse of man's ways. Abel is chosen, not Cain. Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. Moses, not Aaron. Leah, not stunningly beautiful Rachel. Old, barren Sarah is chosen, not Hagar. His ways are not our ways. He chooses 
the girl no one wants. God chooses the girl no one wants. God chooses the son that everyone forgot. He wants you to know that. It was the time in the fields that prepared David for the throne. While the world is awed and impressed with the height of Saul, the appearance of Eliab, social media following, riches, beauty, accomplishments, Jesus says, I see you in the field. I see you. I see you being overlooked. I see you being forgotten. I see you being faithful. Here's how you know I'll see you. I'm willing to trade this beauty to become ugly. The Bible says he was unrecognizable. You have beautiful Jesus who leaves his throne in heaven and comes to earth and experiences all of our ugliness. Overlooked, mocked. I will trade it all so you can have my beauty. That's true kingship. That's what a true king does. And only in believing that can you be filled with his spirit. It's the only way that we will actually be able to live like a king or a queen in training. It's to be filled with his spirit and understand his beauty was given up so that we could have it in place of our ugliness. Amen. Father God, we thank you that we can have a relationship with you through your son, Jesus. We thank you for being reminded that we are royal heirs, for being reminded that you see in the field for yourself a king or a queen. God, in our moments of loneliness and our, our moments of despair and wondering, do you see us? Do you hear us? Does anybody notice? Does anybody care? God, remind us that you see and you care. And not only do you care, but you see for yourself a king or a queen. I pray that we would not forsake the field, but we would embrace it. We would love it. We would be thankful that it's in those moments that you are training us up for your kingdom. I pray that we would be godly examples of true kingly leadership in this community. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you.